Hispania 82 one day at a time. Day three has hit us with a group of games that, let's be honest, weren't all that mouth-watering. But then if I was to tell you that we had a total of 18 goals in three games, ah, look, it's a long story. It was a mixed bag. But by God, are there a lot of stories. Kieran, how are you? Hola, Rob. Hola, indeed. Who will I introduce next? Ah, Colin, how are you? I'm good, Rob. Very, very happy to report that uh, I saw some gold. That's that's the one of the day, one day at a time burst for Colin. He actually yeah. had a game with goals in it. We have the we have a ratio like he needs to either see a game that has over ten goals or less than zero. Well, less than zero, less than one. I need to do some maths. Mick, how are you? I'm brilliant. I'm actually brilliant. I am feeling, I'm feeling such resentment towards my parents. Though I feel yeah. like watching this World Cup. Three days in, and even some of the games, they're not, the ones I've seen anyway, they're not brilliant, but there's always something about them. I kind of feel like I was born 20 years too late, or 10 years too late anyway, Ah. not to have been able to actually enjoy this particular World Cup and all its glory at the time. So I'm going to be having a war with the folks. You always give me good segues, and what a segue that is. A man who remembers this World Cup, who was born in time to see this World Cup, and you won't mind me announcing that to the world. Kevin Corcoran, welcome back to our little soiree and for your first appearance on Espana 82. Hi, lads. How's it going? Uh, yeah, I was 10 when this World Cup was started, so this was premium time for a kid's sticker albums, uh, Scotland's World Cup song, all that sort of stuff. It was like the most important thing in the world. So looking forward to chatting about Scotland's magnificent performance on this day. I, I felt like we needed to give Kevin some walk-on music today. Oh, yeah. Feeling it, Kev? Can of hear it. Better turn it up. Oh, it's a bit of... Oh, yeah. Oh, there we go. There we go. Sing along, Kev, if you remember the words. Oh, I do, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I- John Gordon Sinclair sang this, the guy who was the star from Gregory's Girl, which is a film that maybe you don't remember, but I certainly do. It's a very Scottish person remember That was like train spotting for the early 80s, wasn't it? <laughs> Without the drugs and yeah, exactly. the good yeah. soundtrack and whatnot. That and Restless Natives. Yeah, that's another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a better soundtrack. It was a big country now. Louder! Louder! I have a dream. Come This song was written by B. A. Robertson, who's a terrible Scottish rock act from the eighties, and a guy called Christian, who's our version of Johnny Logan. <laughs> There's only one Johnny Logan, sure. For you, oh, it's a great song. It's a great song. Thank you, and you can dish it now. Got him, mate. Nobody's we'll even singing. Carry on. <laughs> oh, brilliant, Kieran! You've put you put in the extra work in this in this World Cup. I have to appreciate that. We have three games to get through today on a day when uh, the world was still uh, recovering from the news that the Falkland War was over. That's going to come up a little bit later in the Scottish section of the uh, of the reporter in, through the games, but also a day when people were just talking Brazil. I got some interesting notes on that as well. Alex Ferguson talking Brazil in the Aberdeen Express is it? Yes, it is. Um, but that's for later too. Uh, incidentally, at a time when uh, Bobby Robson was about to take over as England manager after this World Cup, and he was suggesting that his successor at Ipswich should be the plainly monikered at that time, Alex Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good nugget. 
And wow. as we know, Ipswich went another way, day, another way and everything went superb. All right, enough of that. Let's get to game number one, Peru versus Cameroon. Peru, nil. Cameroon, nil. Mick Foley, uh, when we sat down and divided up the games, uh, we said, you're the man for this. No, you didn't. No, you, you not. did not. Oh, I said, on. I will do this. I said, I will take the burden because I knew what was coming. And I said, look at Colin has just lived a life of nil all draws in these podcasts. I said, it's not fair for him to have to do it. You know, <laughs> I knew, you know, Kieran and, and, and Kevin, let the mascot in New Zealand. You can continue drinking your cocktails at home, Rob. I'll watch <laughs> Cameroon and Peru. I'll do it. I'll take it out. That's how it happened. I mind you're retelling yeah. a history now. So There's I a lot of retelling it. a history on this podcast. <laughs> so I watched it and it was nil all and it was just yeah. exciting. It was just as exciting as the scoreline suggests. But of course, always in these things, if you scratch a little bit at all at all, you know, you find things and stuff and just yokes of ridiculousness uh, that just kind of bring you along through the game. And this was Cameroon, Peru. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, just to make sure the video was working and stuff, I switched it on for a few seconds. Uh, was it played in a town park or something? It seemed to be, I don't know. Tell uh, me more. Rob, there is a story behind the stadium. Yeah. Yeah, do you want to tell it, Kieran? Go on away. No, I think I, you tell it, Michael, but I've got some statistics from Shoot regarding what happened. So you, you can you can paint the scene and I'll fill All it right. in with the numbers. All right. Well, it's the, it's the, I don't even know how this is pronounced exactly. I should, because this is a Champions League ground you've heard a million times since. The Riazor. Is the Riazor? The Riazor in La Coruña, okay, Deportivo La Coruña and all that. But in the early eighties, Deportivo La Coruña were not anything. They were, they were to keep it to, to, to keep it on message. I suppose they were the queen of the south of Spanish football. They were just you know somewhere and nowhere all at the one time. Um, weren't, queen of, weren't queen of the south like the blue Brazil? Or have I got them mixed up with beef. Montrose? All beef, golden beef of the blue Brazil. Golden beef. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so. They rebuilt the stadium, the Riazor. Uh, it required like total reconstruction. Um, it was 80% of public. Like, so the bill was 500 million pesetas, right? I'm not sure what that is in modern money, but anyway, 500 million pesetas sounds like enough. 20 pence. It, 20p. Okay, well, 80% of that 20p, right, was paid for by public money, right? So they, they raised most of the place to the ground. They built two double-decker stands, and at uh, at the western end, the two stands kind of curved around, and there was this there was this big marathon tower. It was like a big kind of obelisk thing behind the goals that was always there. And they just built the stadium around that, or built the stands to meet that. But at the other end, there is no stand. There's nothing behind one back of the goal. When you're watching it, all you see is jeeps and maybe team buses parked behind it, and you've got like a running track and stuff, and a like a sand pit for long jumps and stuff that looks like it was just used. Like there's sand spat all over the place outside. I like no, I like stadiums that don't look like other stadiums. Like I'm not a fan, like we say, of you know, the current kind of World Cup European Championships where all the stadiums are saying, I hate that. I like stadiums that look different and sound different. But this was just ridiculous. This was just like another hole in the ground. It was like that time, you know, when you when you go on your holidays and you arrive at your rented accommodation or whatever, and you look at it and go, Good Jesus. And the guy goes, Well, you have a choice. You can either stay here or you can feck off. That was kind of more or less the choice, I'd say, when FIFA and Cameroon and Peru landed up to this hole in the ground. They went, well, you can either play here or you just can feck off. If you remember, shoot from your childhood, 
there was always a page called Worldwide, which had kind mm. of little snippets. So from the issue released in the week of the World Cup draw, there was a World Cup stadium's hit snags. Bad news from La Coruña, one of the 14 centres to be used during the World Cup finals. The upper tier on one of the stands has been declared unsafe by the authorities. Was it made of cracker bread? Cracks had been discovered. Uh, further investigation revealed that technically the concrete is in very poor condition. These guys might be going for pyrite restitution. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> and chloride content, chlor chloride content is 40 times the safe maximum. The only solution, and this might explain things for you, Michael, mm -hmm. the only solution seems to be to pull the stand down and build a new one. But there are only five months to go. Now read on. 65 feet long and 25 feet high, 100 feet from the ground. This is the skeleton of one of the brand new electronic scoreboards being erected at Barcelona's new camp in time for the inaugural game of the World Cup. Apart from publicity and match details, the scoreboard can screen action replays and even interviews. I think the scoreboard is still in the new. Wow. You, know the one that, you know the one that's at one end of the ground? Mm-hmm. Despite the initial cost of 1.4 million pounds, the club reckons wow. to make 250,000 per season of extra advertising revenue. Now, to put that in perspective, I don't think Gary Bertels cost 1.4 million pounds. There was a scoreboard in the stadium wow. in Barcelona worth more than the most expensive player in the UK. Uh, I think that's my dad bought a new color television for the 1982 World Cup. Um, and he always he talked about it for so long and so often that I think he thinks that it cost more than that screen. Um, <laughs> uh, did he, oh, did he see Brazil play in that screen? He must have seen the value. Did he watch Brazil? You no, sure? he, he, I mean, there was never the value. The, he reckons he got value for money, but he just liked to remind everybody. I think the entire Kiltamar Road uh, was overwatching, so he was happy. And, and I, I think basically, Mick, what that means is that what you saw or the gap you saw was the the stadium that the, the end of the stadium that had been condemned and the remaining rubble. That that ah. makes that makes a lot of sense. I like the the pictures right now. The stadium is right next to the beach in Carunia. Like so, I mean. It, God, the possibilities were wonderful. I mean, you know, if you're, I mean, people have tried to sort of, you know, create this notion that it's a, like they've described the roofs of sail like supported by cables that were anchored like mooring ropes on concrete blocks behind the stand. Wow. As though, as though that was, you know, that's what we were thinking. All right. Yeah. Yeah. We we're trying to make it like a boat. Oh, Jesus. There must be a lot of goals. There must be a lot of goals in this game if we're like eight minutes in. We're still talking about the, the, engineer, um, the engineering report. <laughs> So there you go, guys. Uh, Peru now. Moving on. There were some chances, including like an offside goal on, uh, you know, on the Cameroon side of things that like possibly, you know, not to spoiler alert here, possibly is the reason why Italy won the World Cup. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm just throwing it out there. Mm -hmm. Roger Mila was robbed. Absolutely. He was completely and utterly robbed. Uh, and, you know, yeah, because goal difference came into the, the situations at the end of the group, and it's what, it's what screwed Cameroon at the end, if they had won this game, who God only knows, God only knows. Mm. But yeah, yeah, it was a, like he was kind of, he was through. Um, and uh, the left, the Peruvian left back, he's inside the box and there's a line of, there's a line of Peruvian defenders and a couple of them have come slightly far, but the Peruvian left back is clearly playing him on side. And he's, it's a great finish. Like he turns and he smashes it high to the net. It's terrific. Um yeah. 
But that's no, 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 no. We're not having any fun here today. So back they went. And I mean, Mia was, I mean, I would obviously, obviously, because what we know of 1990, you're looking for him. You can say, what? Even what does he look like? You know, like he's got a bit more hair. He's got a funky beard. He's got like very nice necklace, a kind of a necklace on him. He looks good. Like he looks the job. He's playing for Bastia at this point in France. So he looks the job. And like on the Peruvian side, then you're looking sort of see who the hell, like the, Teofio Kubias, who was the great, like Pele anointed Kubias as his natural successor as a South American great back in the 70s. Like, where is he in all of this? And he's there. He gets taken off after 56 minutes. It, it, it just defied. I mean, he had just, he had just absolutely withered two Cameroon defenders with a little shimmy to get away from them. Um, and you're going, ah, oh, he's getting into it now. And the next thing, the Peruvian coach, uh, the Brazilian exotically named Tim uh, took him off. And you're kind of going, oh, my God. Oh, here, do you want to hear something interesting about Tim? Mm-hmm. Well, there want to be something inter- interesting because well, that is not an interesting name by Brazilian standards. Well, well, now, in fairness, it's not the most boring. I actually, this is the depths that this podcast brings you to, right? So I said, right, oh, Tim is a pretty boring Brazilian name. How boring Brazil? So boring Brazilian football names, right? We've had a Fred, <laughs> as we know. We've also had, lads, an Alan, a Bill, a Douglas, and a Ralph. So Tim, no. Tim takes his place. That's, I mean, that's, there we are. But Tim, Tim is interesting because he played for Brazil in the 1938 World Cup, right? He he played against Czechoslovakia in 1938, and he re-emerges in 82 as a Peruvian manager. It's actually the longest gap in World Cup history for participating in two tournaments, as player, manager, whatever. But what struck me was it really gives you a sense of how far back we're going here. Again, with 40 years is 40 years. But we're also looking at a Peruvian manager who was at the 1938 World Cup and played in the 1938 World Cup. Now, he passes away in 1984. And to be honest with you, <laughs> the decision to take Kubias off suggests that rigor mortis was possibly setting in already in some part of him because it was just an incredibly stupid thing to do. But... uh that was the most, that was the most kind of, you know, they, they were the two that you were watching for. And really beyond that, there, there was no one else on any, Uribe, actually, Uribe was very, very good. for Peru was the new Kubias, apparently. He was yeah. Kubias there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was, he was. But he, he, he played very, very well. But I was just going to say, bringing up Kubias and Peru for a Scottish person, you're a bunch of cruel feckers. That's, I did a bit of research on Kubias. So, do you know Kubias played with George Best for Fort Lauderdale Strikers in '79? So, his career yeah, still there. from the path of being the great Pele had said he was going to be the next great South American player, and his career meandered through, destroyed Scotland in '78, all that sort of stuff. And then he was starting playing in the NASL for a few years, like the rest of them, making his making his pension money along with George. Um, yeah. And he looked fantastic, like you said. Like he looked great in the match, but I don't know why they took him off. Dear God. Speaking of pension money, um, Tim had announced prior to the World Cup that he was going to pack in management after 38 years. And oh, he did so in spite of an offer from Saudi Arabia to manage them that was going to be £15,000 a month. Now, that's Jesus. a lot of money now. Imagine it in 1982. And his quote at the time was, uh, this is my last period abo- abroad. I've already turned down an offer from Saudi Arabia for £15,000 a month. What good is money if I have to be away from my two daughters and grandchildren? So I'm glad he got to spend the last good two man. years of his life with his two daughters and his grandchildren. Good man, Tim. I tell you, I, I tell you now how, 
I mean, you know, quick snapshot of the game, right? Cameroon were very physically strong, defensively very good, very happy to just pass the ball back to Thomas and Kono and goals as often as they possibly could and kill it at all costs, right? The Peruvians tried early doors, but they just couldn't break them down and they didn't have the craft. And the game kind of just collapsed into a kind of a mess of people falling over the ball. Not There are things I like in football matches, like passes being completed and guys being able to control the ball to a reasonable degree. None of this yes, was present in this game, right? <laughs> so that was, that was a problem. Um, so much so that the Spanish TV director very early on he knew his football. He knew what was coming. So he decided very early on, I'm going to swing the camera around to the crowd because there's f- nothing to be seen on the field. I hope he so, went to the part of the ground that had crowd. He did. He did, yeah. The safe part of the ground that people could congregate without fearing that a piece of cracker bread roof was going to fall down on top of their heads. Um, so like he, but of course, it being 1982 and it being, um, this is the first time you had two African teams, Algeria, and Cameroon. Of course, he went looking for the exotics, right? So he finds, you know, he finds a Cameroon fan in traditional garb, you know, really colorful, fantastic. He finds a beautiful Cameroonian woman with a like a headdress on it, you know, a, a fantastic, like lovely, completely and utterly stereotypical. He finds he finds another Cameroon supporter puffing a pipe, which just looks mad. But then he also finds the one thing that that just crosses all World Cups: the guy who gets a ticket for a match that he has no idea what's going on. He's been given the ticket because he knows it's a cool thing to be at. And he's he's had a great day, right? So he caught a Peruvian guy in the crowd wearing a straw boater with like a, a band around it with all the flags of the country who are involved in the World Cup, which I think is the 82 version of a half and half scarf. Burn it, right? He's also wearing, he's also wearing an Espana 82 Naranjita t-shirt, right? Big orange, right? He clearly looks pissed. He's had a few, like he's had a few shorts before he's gone in and I'm having a great day, mate. Come on through. And he's there. And, but now it's about 15 minutes into the game when the camera pans to him and you can tell the reality of his situation is dawning on him. I've got to sit here now for 90 minutes. I watch this. <laughs> and I was in a grand bar chatting away about four. I have no interest in football. I know I've got to sit here and watch this thing. We've seen them at all matches. We've seen them at every single game ever. And they were there on this day as well. The game finishes with like booze from the crowd, celebrations from a few Cameroon players. Um, I, I saw a headline. I, like Kevin, you might have wanted to come in on this and feel free to do so. But I did see a kind of a what I thought was pure cliche coverage in the mirror, was it, uh, the day before the World Cup that Peru and Cameroon have arrived and talk about witch doctors and the whole shebang. Yeah. Were they it's, just it's reaching for cliches or is there a feeling? Oh. I'd say one million percent, yes. 1980s British tabloid journalism mm. at its best said uh, the Cameroon team arrived with a witch doctor who immediately requested flies, lizards, and garlic for his uh, magic brew. His magic brew. Uh, that was going to help the team, apparently, drinking uh, some uh, thing with flies, lizards, and garlic in it. And Peru uh, immediately countered by sending for two wizards to make uh, make to take away the curse. So that was absolutely gotcha, stereotypical red top nonsense. Have I wandered into Dungeons and Dragons or something? <laughs> I was, I thought they got Roy Wood in and, and some other head. There was no way it was a certainty. Yeah. Is, is it true that the Cameroon team 
all slept in the same room on a floor the night before or something like that? Uh, nearly. I'm not sure. Was it that game or was it the final playoff game that got him to the World Cup, right? So the story goes, actually, the, how they got to the World Cup is you know mildly interesting. Like, as I say, first time two teams got through. So ordinarily, they just played like a two-legged sort of like a knockout Champions League phase all the way through. And whoever was standing at the end got through to the World Cup. But this time they could send two teams. So they did the same thing. But uh, Cameroon beat Malawi, they beat Zimbabwe, they beat Zaire, and they made the final playoff against Morocco. Morocco, by the way, who were uh, uh, managed by Just Fontaine uh, of, you know, 1958 yeah. French free score and striker. Um, but he was so confident Morocco would win. He left their two best players abroad. They played overseas. He said, ah, we don't need you. You'll be fine. First leg was in Morocco. They lost 2-0. Player revolt. Lads were brought in. And this, they lost the second leg 2-1 uh, below in Cameroon. So... The boys, Cameroon, make it. To your point about the uh, about sleeping there on the floor, they either slept together on the floor the night before the second leg against Morocco because the, the coach was going around looking for his team captain actually to have a chat. And he went to every room. There was no one in the rooms. And he found them all sleeping together in one room on the floor. Or it was the night before the Peruvian game. Either are, either are. But it was um, the, where the piece, I've, I found it in, oh, it was referred to as superstition. But I think it was a translation. I don't think it was like juju magic or anything. It was just like, um, I don't know. It's just a thing. Camaraderie thing. Yeah, I, I'm not sure there was. But I mean, the, the Peruvians did accuse them of of, um, of witch doctoring. like. But but more so because they thought Thomas Encona and Gola was so brilliant. Like he wasn't that brilliant, I'll be honest. Like, I mean, it was fairly. Not even the best goalkeeper in that game, I don't think. No, <laughs> no probably not. No. Uh, uh, well, I mean, they obviously have a great bond because... I did find that uh, when they qualified, so after that second game against Morocco in Yaoundé, Roger Miller goes missing for a couple of weeks. Like yeah. his French weeks? club, yeah, his French club find him when he comes back for being away from training and matches. But uh, you know, he's just got into the spirit of celebrating qualifying for the World Cup. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Time for game number two. We've got goals. Hungary. 10, El Salvador, 1. All right, we move on. This is Colin Sheridan's moment of truth. This is it. Oh, yeah. Best look 11 out. goals. Your average goals per game in matches rewatched has, like, transformed. No more complaints from you. I thought You're it up, Rob. I thought it up, Rob, between yeah. Italia 90, Euro 92, and uh, <laughs> Spania 82. So far, I have not seen 11 goals. Um, <laughs> and then I get so it's, it is you wait for a bus and then 11 of them uh, come along at once and uh, <laughs> you, you can't get on them so this is um, this is obviously 10-1 Hungary beat El Salvador um, in a pretty historic game obviously uh, given its scoreline uh, so plenty of history made but like in researching this game it's very quickly becomes about uh, the team that scored the one goal and not the team that scored the 10, which is often, as Mick pointed out, you know, you see the results, you think you're going to expect one thing from a game, and then you do a, a deep dive where you start looking into the circumstances around the game, et cetera, et cetera. But this is, um, this is all about El Salvador, really. Hungary, obviously, you know, a world power in football in the, in the 1950s, um, you know, led obviously by uh, Puskas, and then go through a period of the, the, a, a certain fall from grace over the next uh, 25 years or so, re-emerge in 78, 
have a sort of a, a brutal enough encounter in the, with the hosts in the, in the first game of 78. And, um, but they were like, they come into the 82 tournament um, full of confidence, I think. This was going to be a pretty good tournament for them. And this game, obviously, with the results and the way, the way it went for them, uh, led, led by their uh, Tibor Nyalassi, um, their midfielder and leader and captain. Uh, this was obviously set them up for what should have been a great tournament. We'll obviously get to how it went for them after that. But no, this is all about El Salvador. Um, El Salvador come into this tournament. It's easily the of all the contemporary World Cups, if we can call 1982 uh, contemporary, which I think if we were all alive for when it happened, then it must be contemporary. Um, this has to be the craziest backstory of, of a team getting to a World Cup, their preparation, the context of where they came from, from their home country, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, it's, you know, I, I watched the game and then ended up watching or at least trying to watch like a 19 minute, like BBC documentary on a massacre that happened in a remote village in El Salvador, nine months before the tournament where, you know, somewhere between 750 and a thousand people, most of them women, children and elderly people were killed. And this is in a country with a population of a similar size to Ireland, you know, 6 million or so, even back in 1980. Sorry, 1982. Um, so we're talking like this is seven months before the tournament. That massacre happens. Um, this is in the beginning, the very beginning, or two or three years into what turned out to be a 13-year civil war. All of the players that went to the World Cup, 20, not 22, because they decided it was better to bring uh, a squad of 20 rather than 22 for, I suppose, probably to put two more suits in the plane. I think that was it, actually. And the two, the two extra suits disappeared quite quickly on their holidays when they got there. But all of the players were amateurs, all of them based in, in El Salvador. So this wasn't, not that you can ever compare players coming from trauma to play in a, on the world stage. This was very much, uh, these players were like their families themselves. They were like living this civil war when they got to the World Cup. Um, the circumstances of even how they got there is absolutely insane. Their training was completely interrupted. Um, it took them 72 hours to reach Spain. They were very easily the last of the teams to arrive. They came, or they arrived in Spain three days uh, before their, their opener against Hungary. Um, before that, they played, like a week before they played Hungary, they played a Brazilian team, Grimeo, in a friendly. Uh, then they flew to Guatemala, where they spent a night at the airport. They flew to Costa Rica, to the Dominican Republic, and they finally ended up in Madrid. Mental. And then another fight to Alicante. Yeah. And this is all, you know, a few days before they play the World Cup opener against a very strong team like uh, Hungary. Um, so no excuses. No excuses. <laughs> and, you know, make, <laughs> make mentioned oh, off air, which, which was the, you know, it's, it's the perfect line really about how, you know, you consider the pros of today or even the pros of 20 years ago, as we remember them in Saipan complaining about not having, you know, the training you know, ground being like a car park or whatever. They had no footballs. They, they had, had no uh, balls. They had no balls. They had no kit. Well, um, just, just on that, Colin, like yeah. Mick, did, did they have to go, they had to go looking for footballs. They sent a player around to the Hungarians. It's like it's going around to your neighbor knocking on, on the door. I, uh, just, would you, our ball is burst. Do you have any <laughs> do you have football there? We can buy like, they were like FIFA were meant to provide footballs for everybody and, and a basic level of gear. Um, but there was no no footballs. No balls. It just could bring you back to Roy Keane in Saipan. No footballs. Training grounds like a car park. Lads would have been delighted with a car park. 
Like they had a kick around the day before the match because they managed to catch a few balls from the Hungarians. <laughs> then on top of that, so like they hadn't seen Hungary play before, but an agent appeared on the scene with a tape, a VHS, I presume, not Betamax, um, and said, you can have the tape, but it's going to cost you. So they did a whip round and they got enough, enough money, or got up enough money to buy the tape um, off the agent and so they they play so they so, so they watched it. The coach um decided that they that that the, the the best similarity or the best parallel you could make was with Paris Saint Germain, who El Salvador had beaten in a friendly a couple of weeks previously, and said they play mm-hmm. just like PSG lads. So do you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna play four strikers, right? And we're gonna go balls out attack, right? They're going let's do the thing they absolutely don't expect us to do. Uh, and off they went, and off they went. Mm. But like as Colin is outlining there, like it's just, it's mental. Like I mean, the just to go back to the civil war, just briefly. Like so, seventy nine it starts, and I, one of the one of the defenders, um, Francisco Yovel, said they'd be training, um, and he said, you know, if we arrive late, it was often because we had to stop to assist wounded people abandoned alongside the road. Like this was a, you know, it, it, this wasn't some kind of a detached experience for them. It's kind of, like they're all in the country, they're living it. Um, it reminded me somewhat of, you know, of sports people in Northern Ireland trying to get to training um, and, you know, having to go through roadblocks and maybe not being able to travel at all because it was just too dangerous and having to train in different parts of the country, not being able to train together and stuff. So, like, it, it does a little bit of that in it. Um, what else could you say? Oh, the footballs, just on the footballs, right? The other thing, gear, right? So the tracksuits went missing, but FIFA had gear for them, right? FIFA gave them bags and kit. But they had their suspicions about the bag and kit. They reckoned that they weren't new. There was something about them that told them that these were at least eight years old. And the giveaway was that the 1974 World Cup logos were still on the bags and no the kit they were given. So they were like, for So Jesus presumably they'd been shipped from Mexico. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They've had more than a 72-hour journey. Yes. <laughs> so like, just... They stayed at the shooting lodge, which doesn't sound bad, but apparently it was just. Doesn't dreadful. sound great if you've just come from a civil war torn country. Yeah, Colin, like they were disjointed, they were a mess. I mean, we're not like that first header that Hungary get. If ever you were to predict a ten one at one nil, it was looking like it uh, from a corner. I don't think anyone picked him up unmarked from a corner. I think that's yeah. That's, uh, that's this good. is the very definition of this is the greatest coaching video i think this game actually could serve as one of the greatest coaching videos of all time and and it's not like they're i suppose without sounding too they're not zaire bad you know they're no. not they're like yeah. clearly yeah. they they can play and one of their players actually comments that this was the their best performance of the world cup now we'll 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 get to that mm-hmm. in the days and weeks to come they're not mexico but, out in qualifiers they they can't have been exactly they did and, and you can actually see you know even like at, at a glance at this game that they can actually play um but you watch them and there's this you know they obviously go one nil down after four minutes nihilis's nihilis's hitter header as you rightly say rob it's like the great, you know it's the greatest how not to defend the set piece example you're ever going to watch and you know, but even at halftime, it's 3-0. Okay, we've all watched, like, World Cup matches that we've forgotten uh, where the weaker team were 3-0 down and, you know, they'll limp over the line and lose 4-1 or 5-1 or whatever. Um, 
So, but it was really the telling thing. And that's where the context, I think, really adds to this is the telling thing is that, as Mick rightly points out, it's not like they just sit back and like invite everything onto themselves. No, they're actually trying to play football. They're trying to attack their tactics. That's their big mistake. It's, 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 a, it's, their, it's their big mistake. There's and no midfield. There's, there's, no, there's, midfield. there's absolutely no, no, midfield. no midfield whatsoever. They literally don't have a midfielder. They don't have a midfield. <laughs> they play like modern day Ireland. It's just kind of and, um, <laughs> Stephen Kenny's Ireland. But no, it's, it, so it's like, it's, it's, it's the most bizarre thrashing of all time because it's not like they can't play. It's not like they're obviously they're out of their depth in the sense you don't lose 10-1 and not be out of your depth. But um, they had an idea that they mistakenly stuck to it and that they actually tried to attack. And like even, you know, some of the Hungarian players reflecting on it and speaking afterwards acknowledged the fact that, you know, this wasn't like some sort of men against boys scenario in the sense that they actually did try and put it up to them. They had chances in the first half and they did. But it's so in that context, it's actually a pretty bizarre game to watch. Um, but it's just the naivety of their performance, I think, is is, is what a kind of what comes. But still, three nil, three nil down at half time. <laughs> well, um, yeah. I mean, the moment of the game is their goal. Yeah, so it's five nil at this point, and one of like if we we won't get like I was going to say, is this the greatest celebration of the World Cup? No, this is the Tardelli World Cup, but like it's up there. If you're doing your top five celebrations, I feel like we're going to have this one in there as uh, the Pata to make it five one. My God, does he just go? You know what? Zapata to Ramirez Zapata to make it five one. The build up play to the to the goal was actually there was some brilliant pieces of skill in the build-up play and then it kind of dissolves into a kind of mini farce in the, in the in the box and then he finishes from a couple of yards out but the way he wheels and celebrates um and again without being overly profound about it but when you consider what the team had been through their journey there both literally and figuratively uh what that goal must have meant to him clearly and his team although there was talk afterwards that his his teammates were telling him to to calm the f down because all he was going to do was like antagonize the Hungarians to go on further and punish them even more, which may have been true. But um, such an uh, just such a, a, a an outpouring of uh, emotion. Clearly, at this point, the result beyond doubt. Uh, the Pata came on as a sub in the 27 minute. This is where they went from what I think was four three three to four two four. At three 0 down, that's the best I can deduce, <laughs> judging by the positions of players. So I gotta say, Mr. Well, Mariko uh, Rodriguez, well, uh, well, that was brave. Uh, I think and Mick, in that Mick, moment it paid off. Nick has got some good stuff on 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 the coach. I think he was he was. Oh God, God love him. He was only thirty six. Mauricio Rodriguez, not a name you're going to, not a name you heard. Like actually, ever again, he never coached again. Unless, went you were, off he, unless you're into civil engineering, I think. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Engineering company, yeah. He went off and, he off and became an engineer. The path of the nickname was El Pele. I like that. Mm. I like that. And I liked, I do like the way the lads would over, apparently went over, as you say, Collins, and like, Sam Don, you're going to make him mad. Lads, the ship has totally sailed on that one. Like, we're five <laughs> down. They're already cross. But the other, the other one small little, you know, snippet of a thing, like they didn't even have, you know, like the pennants you exchange at the coin toss and stuff. They didn't even have a pennant. And they realized this the day before. They must have seen it on, on, on one of the games or something that everybody was exchanging stuff. And we don't have anything. So the goalie was out for a walk. He saw a pine tree near the shooting lodge and he went over and he, he must have been some class of a carpenter or a wood turner or something. He, he, uh, 
he cut he cut a piece of wood and he carved the name El Salvador on it to exchange with the Hungarian captain, which I think is like the coolest thing, probably yeah, that's that was exchanged. <laughs> you know, at a World Cup, that that is so 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 cool. But um, yeah, it was just like they tried to put the subkeeper on. The coach tried to put the subkeeper on. Subkeeper went, not a chance, lad. I'm not going near that. And like it was sort of, you know, the, I think, you know, what would you call it? Cooler heads prevailed and said, no, no, we just want to demoralize one keeper today and not two. You know, we might need him for the next match. I liked their comeback then, post-Hungary. Where they started, how they started was impressive. So first thing they decided to do, Ignore the coach, right? <laughs> Write the coach out of whatever he says. Don't do what Johnny don't does. Just do the opposite. Do the opposite. Um, second thing they did was they arranged a friendly game against the waiters at the hotel where they were staying. Good move. Good move. You're going to build won- confidence. Yeah, let's let's beat the waiters. Let's beat the waiters. They 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 gritted out a one nil win against the waiters. They're back, but then there was a bit of backlash. Unfortunately, they gave one of the waiters a nickname he didn't like during the game. He insulted them back. This got back to the hotel management and the waiter got fired. And the Salvadorans got a kind of a, you know, obviously got a fit of remorse about this whole situation. And they went on hunger strike until the waiter got his job back. I'm happy to report that the waiter did get his job back and the Salvadorans drove on to greater glory as this tournament progressed. Was, was this it. genuinely a hunger strike or was it caused by the fact that the waiter couldn't bring their food? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, Interesting. Maybe they didn't make right. the menu for that day. I don't know. But uh, there we go. Feel the need to just finish this chat about this game to say that they scored five more goals after Zabata's intervention. Laszlo Kiss became what I can safely predict without doing any research is the only man ever to score a hat-trick from the bench in the World Cup. And that... Wraps up game number one, Hungary 10, El Salvador, a one. Our last game of the day, game three, is Scotland versus New Zealand. Scotland five, New Zealand two. Kevin's getting excited now. It's my big moment. So this this is this is how we repay you for the Peru references. You get Lovely. to talk about a massive Scottish massive, victory. Massive. Well, five goals. It's a massive Scottish victory, but in true Scottish style, it's the one thing that probably stops us qualifying for the rest of the tournament at the same time. It's a pretty Scottish way of doing wow. things. So let's go back to the start. 78 was a nightmare, right, for the whole country. It was a, an embarrassment, and people still talk about it to this day. As a, as a kind of, anybody who lived through 78, and I was only a small, small child. I was only six years old. It's somewhere deep in your heart and your soul that it was just the worst thing in the history of the world. So... Scotland qualified for this World Cup by winning their group. They beat, uh, knocked out uh, Portugal, Sweden and Israel. Northern Ireland qualified from the same group. Scotland were like the third European team to qualify. They qualified with a game to spare. They were a great qualifying campaign. They were just on moving it the very best way they could. Jock Steen was the manager. We had a great squads. We had a great song. Uh, <laughs> The squad had five European Cup winners in it. It had three guys that won the UEFA Cup. It had four players who won the Cup Winners' Cup the following year. It had uh, Steve Archibald who won the UEFA Cup with Tottenham later on as well. 
and three Dundee United players who'd go on to the European Cup semi-final in 84. This was our generation. When everybody talks about Portugal and the great generation of Rui Costa and Figo and that team that came through, this is Scotland's equivalent. All of our best players are about 27, 28, 29. Douglas is in his pomp. This is our time. I'm just going to come in. To put it all in perspective, uh, there was no FIFA or UEFA rankings at the time, but France Football, uh, the well-known magazine in France, used to rank teams every year. And at the time, Scotland were ranked fifth in Europe. Um, England were 15th, I think, at the time. So this is a pretty serious Scottish team. Now, they also, they rocked names on the back of the jerseys in that qualifying campaign, which may be the first team ever to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but going into the World Cup, there, there, there was all sorts of connotations about how the draw would be conducted. So there was a necessity to keep British teams apart. There was a necessity to keep South American teams apart. And the solution that FIFA came up with was that all of the preceding World Cup winners would be first seeds, guaranteeing England a first seeding. Now, this caused ructions with Belgium because they at the time had just been runners up in the European Championship. But it would have an impact for Scotland. And I'm just going to play for the first time today the great Archie McPherson commentating on the draw for the 1982 World Cup in January of 1982. Chante, along with Argentina. The information just getting to us there from Dan Bai was a bit slow. I'm sorry about that, but that was Scotland drawn against Argentina. And it does strike me that that would be the opening game of the entire tournament. I I really do think there's been confusion down there because they're going back. They're going back with the ball. They're not too happy about that. And there is confusion about what is going on. The information given to us, at least it seemed to come out at first, that uh, Scotland were in uh, Brazil section. That's how it looked to us from here. But uh, the name has been put up there in Argentina section. Yes, I thought so. There has been a mistake. There has been a mistake. I'm I'm just Ça listening to this just now. Avec Ira dans le and I think that Belgium, they're going back to Belgium and pointing out a mistake about Belgium. Yes, that, 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 strikes me as, that strikes me as correct, actually. Belgium should have been in Argentina section, as I first said. And Scotland should have been in Brazil section. I mean, that was the way it was arranged prior to the draw. That's what they said they were going to do. You heard correct. That was what was arranged prior to the draw. This draw was so premeditated that the USR did their training camp in Malaga, safe in the knowledge that that is where they would be playing in Brazil's group. Wow. So, Scotland. Um, might have had the opportunity to take the reigning champions out on day one, but found themselves in a group with the USSR and Brazil. 
And you know what? From what we've seen of Argentina on day one, the Scots would have had an amazingly good chance of winning that game. They had all the point, in the world. I have a point on that, Kevin, because uh, Dennis Law's column uh, the day before this World Cup kicked off actually said, you know what, I think Scotland will qualify because I think this is the perfect group for them. There's no chance for complacency. So maybe that Argentina group was no use to them. Although I think at this stage, but a spoiler alert, it seems like whatever way you go, it wasn't good for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. complacency. We, we can get, get to that at the start of the second half in this match against uh, New Zealand. <laughs> My God, yeah. It was a storming, storming start to the game. I mean... This was Gordon Strachan at his very best. One of my all-time favourite players. Really enjoyed watching him again. Yep, Strachan, fantastic run that sets up Kenny for the first goal. Uh, and then John Wart gets two goals uh, before halftime. And we're 3-0 up and cruising. And it looks like it's going to be all of the memories of 78 washed away. We're going to win this game easily. And everybody's mind is already looking ahead to Brazil when we get to halftime in the New Zealand game. And therein lies the problem <laughs> because as soon as the second half starts we get caught uh, not once but twice two critical critical goals you were about to explain like I mean look it's it's a 5-2 win as we know but these two goals bring New Zealand back into the game they even have a chance to equalise I mean yeah. chaos have you any I, I, you were 10 watching it but was a nation just like in absolute like panic as this was all falling apart do you think well we've got a great history of uh kind of making it hard for ourselves and kind of uh, making a mess of it. So, like I said earlier on, when you think of all the players in the squad who had all the, the uh, European Cups and UEFA Cups and all that sort of stuff, uh, in this team, the only weak link you would say is maybe Alan Ruff, who's the goalkeeper, who plays for Patrick Thistle in Scotland. And if you're not aware of Scottish football, Patrick Thistle are the third team in Glasgow, affectionately regarded as the cuddly toy of Scottish football. Because if you're uh, if you're if you're in any any uh, the wrong side of town in Glasgow, you always just say you're a thistle fan, and that gets you out of any sort of trouble. Uh, but Ruffy, and, and Ruffy the bottom was a very thistle. famous Billy Connolly joke. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that, they're, that they're actually called Partick Thistle Nil. Nil. Yeah. <laughs> well, they were called Partick Thistle Nil in 1981-82. Uh, they'd just been relegated from the Premier League before this World Cup. Uh, and Ruffy had conceded 59 goals in the context of that. But he was still our number one goalkeeper, which is amazing mm. um, when you think about it. He had 48 caps before the World Cup started. Uh, the two other goalkeepers in the squad, George Wood, who was at Arsenal and wasn't re- he was second choice, but he wasn't really going to get rough out, of the, out behind the sticks. And Jim Layton, who would have his own little World Cup disaster in 1990. Uh, he was uncapped at that point and w- wasn't getting a look in either. So Ruffy was the goalkeeper. Him and Danny McGrain, uh, the, the club, the Celtic captain who won the league that year and who was the Scotland captain, managed to get themselves into a fankle at the edge of the box. Uh, and that allows uh, Sumner to nip in and put, give New Zealand their first goal. And within two or three minutes, they get a second goal as Alan Evans, making his fourth cap for Scotland, gets caught at the halfway line. Your man runs right through past them, scores the goal. Uh, Wooden, I think his name was. And that's Alan Evans' last ever Scotland game. He won the oh. European Cup for Aston Villa. Oh. He was only 25 years of age, but that's his last oh. cap. End of story. Done. So it's 3 2. didn't mess about. It's 3 2. And as you say, it's panic time back home. We're all watching it going, this is just exactly the same as Argentina. We're going to do it again. All the hallmarks of the draw with Iran are coming back or a defeat to Peru. Uh, so yeah, it wasn't a good time. 
and and Jacqueline had had prepared meticulously for this. Uh, he had actually travelled to New Zealand to watch them play. They they had five matches against the League of Ireland eleven. What a trip if you were a League of Ireland. Wow, that's Um, so Jacqueline actually. And I think uh, Archie McPherson contacted the BBC and said, hey, I'll make a documentary about him going to New Zealand. Um, so it was actually Archie McPherson that I think talked him into it. But as they were traveling, you had two incidents in the Falklands War that kind of rocked Jock Steen. So the first, I think, was the Belgrano. And then, then the very next day, there was the sinking of the Sheffield. And he was convinced at that time because there was still discussion about the... British teams pulling out of the World Cup. He was concerned that if there was going to be discussions around that, he wanted to be at home. And I think it, it, en route in San Francisco, he had decided he was going to head home. And Archie just decided, well, the BBC are paying me to go, so I'll go. And he's sitting in the lounge and Jacques Steen kind of wanders up behind him and says, uh, can he let you go on your own? <laughs> so he does go. He watches two of the matches against the League of Ireland 11s and then decides he's seen enough and does come home because he is deciding that he's worried about the prospect that they might be taken out of the World Cup. But the view of the the Scottish players was very much against, for some of them, was against attending the World Cup with Argentina. Well, Graham Souness had said it didn't seem right to be going to play in a World Cup if Argentina were to be allowed in. Kenny Dalglish had tried to put it back on the authorities. He was saying, why should we be the ones to pull out? they're the aggressor. Why aren't they being taken out? And the context is this is a period when we have boycotts. We've just had the 1980 Olympics. Mm. So politics and sport are being intertwined all the time. But the trip to New Zealand doesn't seem to have prepared Jock for 3-2 <laughs> in his first <laughs> World Cup game. Because Archie McPherson's comment, and I got this from Tom Brogan's brilliant book, We Made Them Angry, was that New Zealand were no better than a junior team in Scotland. But the goal, like the goal, the, the second goal is the kind of one that just can break you. Like it's just straight down the middle. And Alan Ruff is just caught doing, he doesn't know what, he just stays in, he stays in his line until far too late and comes out and essentially gives the New Zealand player all, all the goal he needs to score, you know? But, uh, like I was just watching it going. I mean, you mentioned Gordon Strachan earlier. Like Strachan is involved as of the five goals, he's involved in one, two. Looking at me notes here, three out of the five goals. He just looks like he's, the man is on fire. Like mm. uh, you've got Dalglish. Well, I mean, Kenny Dalglish is my all-time favorite player ever, and will be. Um, so, like, I mean, you know, that's I just look at that Scottish team, and I get I just get excited looking at the names. I get excited looking at the jersey. They look the part. Everything looks right. But it's just this amazing sort of chaos gene that's in these 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 Scottish World Cup squads. That, and I mean, even you look at like Jock Steen's on the picking bing. Like Jock Steen, like the greatest Scottish manager of all time, arguably just, you know, to put it in, but he is the greatest <laughs> yes, Scottish manager yeah, of all time. Yes, yeah. um, like every, everything, it seems to be the perfect combination. And yet, they contrive a way to to make things very nervy in the game that should really, 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 really should have been should have been cleared up it, and sorted up by then. You know? In in Danny McGrain's column and shoot the week before, his quote is, "We're too professional for the Kiwis." 
Yeah. And Danny? Talk about giving them something to stick up on the wall. And and the Kiwis have a knowledge of Scottish football that's that's pretty pretty full. I mean, three of the team are Scottish. Two of them have played in the Scottish leagues before they moved to New Zealand. And I think the chairman of the FA in New Zealand at the time was Glaswegian too. But they're so battle-hardened as a team. They've played 15 World Cup qualifiers. Now, against varying quality of opposition, but I mean, they've only qualified in January having beaten China in a playoff in Singapore. And they had to have a public subscription to get the costs of that trip covered. They actually had to ask the public to help them do it. They'd all of their now, team, they do have all of their all of their squad are home based, so it's like playing a club team if you know what I mean in that sense. So all of their squad actually looking at a lot of the squads, a lot of the squads there's very few players playing different countries. Yeah. The world was a much sm- smaller place then, uh, and it's only forty years ago. But that that yeah, that New Zealand team they like you say, Kieran, they played so many qualifying games. They beat Fiji thirteen nil on their way to qualifying through their first qualifying group. And then, yeah, like you say, they beat China and that, that uh, they were the last team to qualify for the competition. But in saying all of that, Scotland should be much further ahead than they were after an hour of this match. They're 3-2, and as you say, they, they almost got an equaliser, and it is panic stations until John Robertson scores the most delicious free kick to make it 4-2. Oh, and then the final goal from Stevie Archibald. Two dummies, and... Uh, uh, this is not, this is not, yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, I love uh, it. As soon as I think and someone else runs in each other and then Robo comes in and tips it in the top corner. Great goal, brilliant goal. And a great celebration as well. Puffs his chest out just as well because he was carrying a bit of weight at the time. I was about to say, was, was he clearing smoke? Yeah. Um, <laughs> he was one of the gamblers in the squad because he wasn't in form at the time. So Jockstein yeah. is backing him. Yeah. Um, but funny enough that one of, the Scott, one of the New Zealand players, Alan Bolt, had played underage at Dundee United with Neri Storuk. You know, I mean, he was very familiar with the Scottish players. And New Zealand do have one talent in their team that is utterly prodigious. And the only reason he's not playing in England with Norwich at that time is work permit issue. And that's Winton Roofer, who'll go on to have a stellar career in Europe afterwards. He's only 20 at this point, had signed for Norwich, but couldn't move because he couldn't get a work experience or a work permit to work in England. He was he was the one guy that we knew about in Scotland because uh, Scottish television had done a big feature on him before the World I remember that, before the World Cup. He was the big danger man for, for New Zealand. And like you say, he should have been playing in Norwich in the first division, but he didn't get a work permit. So, uh, yeah, he went on to score like 40 odd goals for Victor Bremen or something. He's a great player. Yeah. And substitute Steve Archibald gets the last goal. And uh, like, I'm going to actually ask Billy Joe Patton to watch that because he's obsessed with good headed goals. And this is this is a Billy Joe Patton masterpiece. He, he, he yeah. really will enjoy that goal. Um, it's almost like his, Colin, his head's a funny shape to get it to go that way. Yeah. I know it's just ridiculous. Over and over the keeper into the top. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. That's that's my favorite goal of the game. Uh, Colin Gotts brought the atmosphere again. Kevin will talk to us about that in a second, but it provided the color. It's kind of. I remember in the Italian ninety sticker album, the pictures of the Scottish and the Brazilian fans together in the crowd. I remember that one picture, and I was like, "That looks like a good time." They were having a great time in Malaga. No, they did. They did, and uh, it's exactly that's my memory of it too, Rob. Even in my first, I, I was Kevin in nineteen ninety. I suppose, like we all were, probably for World Cup ninety, when you're ten years old and it's you're looking at uh, World Cup ninety and the Tartan Army um, and all the reportage of that was 
like I think that's what we then thought we became after because <laughs> it's crazy for me to think just just the way Kevin was talking about that though no in all seriousness talking about that Scottish team in 78 and 82 like how nearly familiar that feeling can quickly become after two World Cups that you're going to World Cups all the time and although there's some jittery moments and some nervy moments but you've actually like when I look at that team and I recognize all the names based on you know my eight and ten year old self um and kieran talking about how highly ranked they were uh you know heading into that world cup which is what a time to be a scottish fan with those players playing uh but the fans were incredible the atmosphere was incredible but i'm listening to all of this and having watched it as well i'm like the my only obsession coming out of this is like who would have won between el salvador and new zealand that's all i can think of And Fiji. <laughs> maybe Fiji were the big winners, but no, no, that was, and, and you answered that question halfway through, but I was like, you know, wondering where were New Zealand? Like, what was the expectation in Scotland? Like, was it a six nil thrashing or whatever? And obviously yeah, you've answered that, but that's, that's what we've yeah. been looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. The, the, the story of the fans for Scotland again is fascinating. And I mentioned the book, we made them angry. There's some great fan stories in it, but once the draw is made, and it's confirmed that Scotland will be based no matter what on the Costa del Sol. Scottish fans start buying vans, cars, booking flights. They're going, we're going to have a sun holiday watching the team. Now, this did cause subsequent issues because ticketing was organized through a company in London called Sports World. So you had to buy the tickets as part of a travel package. That memo didn't quite reach Scottish fans. So they literally went, well, we know how to get there. We know there's plenty of accommodation. We'll travel and sure we'll pick up some tickets somewhere. And they made it an art form getting tickets for the next three games. Oh, how do they get them? Do we have any, do we have any, uh, eyewitness well, statements in I, terms of I, how they managed it? I can only speak from 1990 and I was on a bus going to Turin for the Brazil game in 1990. And I saw loads of lads with no tickets going on to buses full of Brazilians and coming out with tickets. <laughs> Whether they were real tickets or not real tickets, I don't know. But I know that they got in the stadium. There was empty seats. Yeah, they, in they basically they, they figured out who, who the locals were with tickets and they went by them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, okay, I'm just wondering, Kevin, like what was the press reaction to that result in Scotland? As in, were, like, they, were they immediately kind of getting hammered for... No, I, I think it's a, a retrospective thing because of the the goal difference issue as the as the tournament progresses. So those two goals, not conceding those two goals, probably means Scotland qualify. So it's a retrospective look back and going, God, we made a balls of that. That's what that's what cost us. But at the time, and because '78 had been such a horrific experience for everybody, we'd won our first game and we'd scored five goals. So yeah, that's not too bad. Jockstein, I think, was. Much more kind of uh, kind of annoyed about the whole thing. He was saying uh, one or two self-inflicted wounds, and if we did defend like that against Brazil and Russia, we'd be punished. So he knew it was coming down the track. But uh, but for the fans, we played a game, we scored five goals, and we won. All good. Like it's one of the things I'm really really interested in is in the first phase of this World Cup and looking at the, like that Scottish squad is so alluring looking, like it's so full of talent right and i'm wondering and maybe it'll it'll obviously it'll play itself out now in the next two matches i'm curious to see is it going to be you know 
it's Alan Ruff and it's the centre of the defence or it's to defend some some issue there. What is it that undoes them? Because even in the centre of the defence, and I remember at the time, um, Kevin, wasn't there wasn't there a whole thing about Alan Hansen and Alan Hansen, you know, being the great Liverpool defender, you know, but he couldn't either. It was either that he wasn't being picked for Scotland or he couldn't get into the in, into teams because you had Willie Miller and you had you had great Scottish centre hats, but. I'm just, I'm just wondering, and I'm curious now, how they're going, how this is going to become undone. And obviously, look, you have Brazil in the group, so you take that. But um, there always seems to, unfortunately for Scotland, there always seems to be something. We saw it in Euro '92, we could identify it, we could identify it in Italia '90 as well. By the end, and I'm just curious to see now what it's going to be at the end of this tournament. As you go, brilliant squad, but there's the weakness, and they just couldn't get past that weakness, you know? Might be just the strength of the group. Uh, here's Alex Ferguson. I'm having watched Brazil the day before. Uh, uh, Alistair MacDonald interviewed him in the Aberdeen Journal, I think it is. It's frightening that Scottish football is still so far to go to approach the standards of skill attained by these South American sides. They are, of course, groomed both physically and in skill from an early age, and they have a more helpful climate for training than ours. But their degree of development is still fantastic. Obviously, you've uh, long since uh, caught up, uh, Kevin, and sorted all those problems out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, good. We're, we're like Brazil now. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, yeah. You, you, Mike, Mike was talking there about Alan Hansen. The, the, the problem yes. for all those guys that played at a high level for Liverpool, even Ken Oglish, Loads of people said he never played as well for Scotland as he did for Liverpool. But that's probably because he wasn't playing with... The players he played with Liverpool were better players than he played with Scotland sometimes, and he'd be a step ahead, and they wouldn't read the through ball and stuff like that for mm. Oakleash, and he sometimes had to do it himself. And the same with Alan Hansen. He was sometimes... He played alongside Lawrenson maybe for Liverpool, and he, or better defenders, whereas with Scotland, it's Alan Evans or it's... Willie Miller, who's just starting to become an international player and all that sort of stuff. So, and there's also that there's also a little bit of Scottish thing about we'd rather have our own play, our own league players, in rather than the Anglo's. There's a little bit of that. Still, yeah. Even then, a little bit of that aggro between the two. You know, I wonder. Yeah. I wonder about that. I wonder about because I mean, I, you know, I take your point, right? That that the players at Liverpool were, were look, obviously they were exceptional. This is a golden era for English football, and they've, you know, they've won seventy eight European Cup and eighty one European Cup. Dalglish has been central in both. But like, you're still, I'm still looking at this team and looking at the squad. Going, there's a lot of quality there yeah. around Dalglish. He's got Sunes there with him to mind him, and you know, he's got he's got uh, you know Strachan outside of there on on the right, absolutely great, like. You know, I'm just curious. I'm just curious to see where the weakness is going to come because it just looking at the players and what I know of them, and these are Scottish players that I can remember from watching them as a kid, and they're all really, really, really good players and a great manager. So I just, I'm just, I'm, I'm, what would you call it? I'm, I'm morosely curious as to how this one is going to go around. Yeah. Uh, is with AC Milan at this stage. 
Mm. Now yeah. he's, he's had a very tough season because this was the season where AC Milan were relegated from Serie A, which ultimately changed them into what they became afterwards. Berlusconi comes in. But Steve Archibald is, you know, flying with Spurs and he's a, he's going to be going to Barcelona next. Yeah. I mean, this is the team of street football. I mean, it's a team of street footballers. You know, does it, John Robertson, Dalglish, these guys are yeah. just yeah, yeah. striking. They're fabulous, 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 intuitive footballers. And also, um, my favourite player, actually, once Kenny left for Liverpool and my heart was broken, my my the guy who I jumped in after that to, to like was Paul Sturrock for Dundee United. Paul Sturrock. He's a great player, yeah. Paul Sturrock. Similar type of like inside forward to Dalglish. Great player, great, brilliant player. I saw George Burley was mentioned as well. I think he had uh, picked up a knock the day after this, so he didn't make the squad. He, he suffered some terrible injuries. And had come back from a very serious injury just yeah. before the World Cup. Yeah, yeah, mm. terrific player with Ipswich, and, but had some terrible, terrible injuries that kind of killed his career, didn't they, around that period? He came back, as you say, Karen, but he was never he was never quite the same, I don't think. Right, as we bring this week's show to the end, uh, we got to pick a team of the day. One thing that's going to be a problem in this game is picking bloody defenders because it sounds like a couple of Scottish defenders made some pretty big mistakes in this game. I'm not sure I'm going to pick any New Zealand defenders after conceding five goals. We can't seriously pick any Hungarian defenders in a game where they dominated that much. Obviously, the entire El Salvador back four under a little bit of pressure to make this team, which leave a, leaves a, uh, Mick Foley to pick defenders from the nil-nil oh, draw. God's sakes like yeah, I need four and a goalie oh Christ well you can put in Kono on goal I yeah. mean witch doctoring or not you can, you can stick him in there anyhow um, <laughs> I, the, the, I don't know I don't know whatever I, I two from Peru and two from Cameroon I, I'll get back to you with the names <laughs> You can check our website for that. Yeah, sorry, I, I, I may have dumped you in there. I was just, I couldn't find any defenders after that. So, will we just play two at the back, like uh, El Salvador style? Just <laughs> well, listen, the last, listen, my my attempt, no defenders. my Who attempt cares? yesterday to in, to introduce some tactical sophistication to the team of the day <laughs> with a Christmas tree formation was so roundly drummed out of the conversation that uh, you can head off now and pick your 4 4 2 off you go. Hey, listen, like, you know, Sunas and Strachan can kind of, can have, well, no, Sunas will pick as kind of like, obviously, one of our many midfielders, but we'll tell him to just track back if he has to. Maybe Alan Brazil can track back. I don't know why you'd get him to track back. Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, pick your team of the day, lads. Uh, I mean, like, Strachan's on it. Daglish is on it. That's easy. Anyone else from the Scottish game? John hey. Mark should be. John Mark should be, yeah. Archie Bold had a bit of an impact, but he's from the bench. Can't be, I don't know if we can, if we can put him in there. Uh, so that's three from Scotland. There's room for a fourth, I think. I think you're going to find, I think most of the Scottish team, I'd say, because, I mean, there's no one really... Uh, I, I, I can't propose anybody from Peru. Oribe for, for Peru had, had, a very, had a very good game, in fairness. Uh, the, the natural successor to Kubias, or so he was touted at the time, and had a very good... Actually, actually Oribe ended up playing for America de Cali in the mid-80s. Hmm. Let me let me tell you. So uh, quite the quite quite the career he had over there. But um, Oribe would be the only one up front that I would suggest. And Roger, Roger, Mia. Roger Mia, of course. Roger and, Mia. And I, I I would take your substitution argument, Rob, and say, are you excluding Laszlo Kiss? That's what no, you gotta put Laszlo Kiss on. Yeah. I mean, if we don't put Laszlo Kiss in, we'll never ever be allowed to put a sub in ever under any circumstances. So yeah. Past. Well. Uh, speaking of subs, yeah. <laughs> God, I was about to ask you for your nomination. Yes, the batter has to make the team if for no other reason than to just make people stop, look up what the story is there and go, fair enough. Yeah. 
That seems reasonable. So you've picked about six strikers. Um, yes. Four anonymous. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. People, Rodriguez. Where is he, Rodriguez? That's the That's where I was going. This is a civil, civil, civil engineered football team. Yeah, I have to uh, say this. I have to say this. This this whole team of the day concept's going very well, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> now, Lassie as well is in there because he was actually quite good in that game. Anyone else, Colin, from the game? Uh, no, Lazlo Kiss, obviously, you already mentioned Rob, um, yeah. the skipper who scored yeah. the first goal, definitely in. But come on, they scored 10 times. It's like, I don't know. Just take your pick. Yeah, take your pick. I'll pick a doozy. Well, I'm going to put in Fazikas because he had two goals from outside the box. So, you know, he was, he was playing yeah, a different nice game. Don't, yeah, yeah, exactly. Anybody who scores twice should get in the team of the day. He'd be pretty. Pretty annoyed. <laughs> it's pretty All right, that's it. It's the guy to, to finish. I mean, it's only going to get better right, from here. A couple of nuggets again from Shoot Rob. Yes. Uh, none other than Tele Santana, obviously clearing what group he was going to have in the World Cup prior to the draw, had gone to watch New Zealand against China in the playoff. Oh, yeah. He warned Scotland. I watched their playoff game against China and the New Zealand players would have kicked the Chinese out of the stadium if the referee had not shown a few yellow cards. New Zealand were far too physical and referees in Spain may have problems controlling them. Now, my word, big words. We did get a, a, a kind of an indication that that would be what New Zealand were like in that uh, Archie McPherson documentary. And perhaps I can just give you a little snippet. The game is eventful at this stage, if only for the tendency of the New Zealand players to go a bit heavy on the physical side of the game. Understandably, one or two players become upset. It is getting decidedly rough. But New Zealand win. They're strong, straightforward, aggressive, and their goal, the only one, has a wholesome simplicity about it that has to be admired. Nannies are just glad they'd be getting to the beds. If one of them could have pinched the referee's whistle, he would have blown a halt just after half-time. I like Archie's description there of the New Zealand goals, having a wholesome simplicity. It's kind of like he's talking about himself, really, isn't it? It, it wasn't <laughs> the simplest goal either, I might add. We'll put it up on, on the Twitter account, but it it's a shot from distance, so it's not. it wasn't the simplest. But the challenge he referred to that the Irish objected to was probably the most robust challenge by a centre forward I've ever seen in a game of football. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. What happened? Basically, Paint me a picture, I, I Kieran. Bobby O'Neill's from was in goal. Um, you know, you know the two brothers that used to play in the League of Ireland, and he basically gets barreled into his own net by a, a big, burly New Zealand centre forward. Really? I, I just kind of a throwback. McPherson sounds like he's described everything he, did, he he commentates. It sounds like he's describing like Henry Morton Stanley meeting Livingston in the <laughs> in Africa. <laughs> this sound like football at all. Uh, and one other final little bit. Um, I don't know if this found its way into the homes, but one of the ads at the time in shoot was for how do football teams glide over the pitch? How do you score goals with a snooker cue? How do you play soccer plus snooker together? The answer is snooker, the great new game of the eighties. <laughs> Craftsman built mahogany tables in two sizes: standard table or deluxe table. So, again, I think we should share that on Twitter for the for our listeners. If I ever get invited to a stag again, we're going playing foot golf. No, we're not. <laughs> we're going playing snooker. Let's do it. Let's knock her it up good. 
let's be honest. If we're anything to go by, the average age of our listeners do not want to be playing football fighter. You know, yeah, they're done with tags. We're done with tags. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 No better for the Yeah. <laughs> Kevin, we've signed you up for more than just Scotland for this. You're coming back to us for other games. That's cool. Yeah, no problem. Right. Looking forward to it. Like I said, I was 10 years old. I watched every game I could. It was the best thing in the world. Un- unless they involved Argentina, in which case they were blacked out. <laughs> Only the first game. After that, we were okay. Oh, I'm sure God, I'm, I'm sure the black veil was draped over the television every time Argentina came on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah my in household, in household. In my household, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. The, the Jerry Adams actor came on and did the voice for all the Argentinian <laughs> players. So. <laughs> he, he sucked on a balloon of helium when he was doing Maradona. Yeah. <laughs> what do we got tomorrow? What's what's oh, next? Good point. I'm kind of, I'm kind of, oh, I'm, with Maradona <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't think he'd get to use there that. There is. Was that actually there the person? There you go, Kieran. You got to use it. That's <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, God. Uh, super. What's tomorrow? I've I've actually forgotten. Oh, my God. I have one job. It's like, that's my job. It's Hang on. Look, this is the cocktails now kicking in. Wait for it. Wait for it. I nearly have it. I have it. I have a whole spreadsheet done out, lads. Oh, it's fading wow. me at the moment, though. See, people oh, think we just rock up and do this stuff, but there's spreadsheets, spreadsheets. there's conversations, <laughs> matches are watching, being watched. Watching nil-nil games, all of that, yeah. What? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Giving out about the fellow wearing the straw border. Born that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Pure pros. Are you there yet, Rob? Have you found it yet, have you? I don't know. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, this is, how many days in? It's, it feels like we're 15 days in, and it's only day three. <laughs> day four <laughs> just stumped me. <laughs> Like it, West Germany, Algeria. That's going to be West good. Germany, oh, Algeria. Yeah. Ooh, that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a good one. England? Uh, England, France. My God, this is a good day. England, France. Yeah. And like lots that. of goals. Maturity and yours. Clearly, I'm not on. Goals. Because... Yeah, Colin, you're not on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're not on. <laughs> Thank, you for, <laughs> Thank you for walking a mile in my shoes, Mickey Foley. Now you know what it's like. And it's just, <laughs> yeah. Not a bother. Not a bother. Colin, no, no. I see Yugoslavia drew, draw nil nil with Northern Ireland. I'm not saying your name is yeah. on it, but I'm just I, saying. I, I want it back. Goals are overrated. Looking forward now to watching Mick Mills and the boys tomorrow. That'll be good. Yes. Yes. And, and other right. English footballers you've completely forgotten about. Honestly, there are more big names on the Scottish team, from my perspective, 40 years on, than the English team. So, Kevin, yeah. I'm not just saying that to cheer you up there. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, it. We're out of here. Right. <laughs> Adios, amigos. Tomorrow. Cheers, Rob. Okay. Bye.